pray that you would move amongst us tonight. You are mighty to save. You are mighty to sanctify. You are mighty to overcome sin. You are mighty to overcome death. We come to you tonight and we worship you because you are a mighty God. And we desperately need you. We wouldn't even be able to take a breath without you. Please, Lord, help us tonight. Help us to honor you with your word. Please keep my lips from error and keep our hearts and our minds from wandering. Help us to focus on your word and help us to see what you would have from us, for us from it tonight. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good evening. It is an honor and privilege to be able to bring the word of God before you tonight. It's easy when we meet uh, at church twice a week, if not more sometimes, to forget how urgent of a matter it is to gather and hear the word of the Almighty God. What could be more important than this? What could be more important than hearing from the word of God? And I know some of you are tired this evening. And if you are tired from work or whatever you do through the day, if you're tired, come and be rejuvenated by the word of God. But maybe you're one of the few in here that's filled with energy. Come and hear how you might exhaust yourself for Jesus. Maybe some of you are filled with joy because things are going very well in your life. Come and hear about the worth of Jesus Christ so you would gladly lay it all down for the sake of knowing and following him. And some of you are filled with grief and suffering this evening. Come and hear the hope that there is for those who know Jesus. You know, I'm often filled with grief and desperately need the hope of God's word. You know, I was thinking the last time I preached in this pulpit was a little over two months ago, and it was at my son Grayson's funeral. And ever since then, it's kind of felt like you have one foot in heaven and one foot here. You're here, but your heart's somewhere else. And I've longed for Jesus more than I ever have before. And almost every time I get the chance to preach, I preach my heart to you. I just preach what would minister to me. <laughs> I know that's kind of selfish, but I figure if I need it, maybe some of you do too. And I was thinking back, a Wednesday night, August 24th of 2022, I preached a sermon on how Jesus was the ultimate and is the ultimate healer. You know, Victoria and I were going through some very difficult health things with Grayson at the time, and we were weary and discouraged and saddened, and you know what I thought? We need Jesus. And God put it on my heart to say that night, if my son lives five years of life but knows Jesus, we win. And it is so much better than living 90 years without knowing Jesus. Five weeks after I preached this sermon, Grayson would suddenly and unexpectedly pass away. And God knew that I needed that truth. At his celebration of life just a little bit over two months ago, I wanted to preach Jesus because when you preach Jesus, you have hope. There is hope 
for the brokenhearted. There is hope for those who have experienced loss, but only through Jesus. And now I come to you tonight, much like the song has already sung, as what can only be described as a shattered vessel that is held together by the glue of Jesus Christ. So guess what we're going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about Jesus. Because there's hope. And the title of tonight's message is this. Knowing and living for Jesus is all that matters. That's it. There's no addition needed. Knowing and living for Jesus is all that matters. And tonight I'm hoping to illustrate this and show this uh, through the life of three men in the scriptures. We will be taking a brief look at each of their life and their death. Of course, not in an exhaustive sense. We don't have the time for that. But all three of these men were men of faith. And they lived in three distinct parts of history. Tonight we will look at Abel, who lived in a time well before Jesus ever came to earth. We will look at John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, walked with Jesus, and would eventually die for Jesus. And we will look at Stephen, who came in a little bit after that, in a time period after Christ had died, had been raised and had already ascended. But though they lived at different times, they had a few things in common. They were men of faith. They all died relatively young. And they all were men who saw the worth of knowing God. And they died gladly following him. And so the goal tonight would be that you would be in awe of Jesus and that you would have no option but to live for him. You see, when Grayson passed away, I wrestled with many questions often, but God often called these three specific men to mind. Because just in my own heart, they didn't live a very long time. And you know what? It didn't matter, because all that mattered was that they knew Jesus. But sometimes, uniquely enough, when you read the accounts of these three men, Abel, John the Baptist, and Stephen, sometimes you read their accounts and you're filled with sorrow because all three experienced unjust deaths. Their life was cut short, so sometimes you think, oh man, that's unfortunate. They missed out on so much. They were young. They had so much life to live, so much potential to be used mightily for the kingdom. Imagine what God could have done with these men of faith. But Lord willing, you will see tonight that in knowing and living for Jesus, even in their relatively short lives, these men lacked nothing. They had everything. And I pray that that same truth would be cemented in your mind tonight. That in knowing Jesus, you lack nothing. And you have everything. Do not desire for one thing greater, for there is nothing greater than knowing Jesus. So turn with me to our first text tonight in Genesis 4. There's going to be three main texts, of course, to talk about these three men. The first one, of course, is Abel may have given it away because you're probably familiar. Abel is at the front of the Bible. The very beginning, Genesis 4 here. This is pretty much as, uh, as close to as early in history, creation's history, as possible here. These are some of the first people that walked the earth. So let's read this. And I know you know the story, but I hope by considering this, we might be able to benefit and see how Abel loved God. Genesis 4, starting with verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about... In the course of time, 
that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Let's pause there for a moment. It's just worth noting um, they had different roles. Cain and Abel. Cain, of course, was a tiller of the ground. He worked the grounds. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. In other words, like a shepherd. And verse 3 tells us it came about in the course of time. It doesn't really tell us how old these men are. It doesn't tell us what transpired in this time. But it seems that they knew they needed to bring an offering to God. They would have known this. And they would have known a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. We know this. Abel's, of course, it says, was accepted. The Lord had regard for Abel. But for Cain's, he did not. This is really interesting. It says Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Let's see how God responds to Cain. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see, God looked at Cain pouting and said, Cain, why why are you upset? If you would have offered it the right way, I, I would have had regard for your offering. Why are you upset? Abel did it the right way. You did not. And he warns Cain. He warns him that if you continue to disobey, sin is crouching right there. You must overcome it. You must master it. But of course we know what happens. Verse 8. This is a unique part of the story that I never caught before. In verse 8. This little detail. Cain told Abel his brother. I've never caught that before. Cain told Abel his brother what? He probably told him what God had told him. And what was that conversation like? Can you imagine? Cain goes out to his brother in the field... And talks to him, maybe about what God had just said. Was there some sort of back and forth? Did Cain go out to the field with the intention of striking down his brother? Or was there something that his brother said that incited this rage? Maybe Abel was trying to help his brother, saying, I just offered in faith. And Cain would have none of it. Maybe there was a pleading of Abel. We don't know. But it says Cain told his brother. And of course, right after that in verse 8, it says what Cain would do. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And after a fit of rage, here stands Cain over the body of his brother, Abel. He killed him. And wicked and self-righteous Cain seemingly triumphs over obedient Abel. Think about that. Abel's body lying there, cold, lifeless. His blood spilled upon the ground. No witnesses to this crime. No witnesses to this atrocity. But we know who saw. Right? God sees all. That's what verse 9 tells us. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain... Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, God says, I was giving you a chance to just come come at me straight. You know I already know. Verse 10, he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God personifies Abel's blood as if it's speaking to him. It's crying out for vengeance. In verses 11 through 16, which we'll we'll touch on a couple of parts of those in just a minute, God curses Cain, right? He curses Cain, but allows him to live a long life. But he is sent away. Now we'll come back to Cain in a minute, but moving back to Abel, think about that. 
you present an offering to God, it is accepted. And what is your reward? Your brother kills you. This is a tragic end. He was obedient. He was young. His life was cut short. What could possibly be the meaning of this? And sometimes when we're starting our yearly devotional plan and we just read through this account, we tend to read through it really quickly and we kind of go away with the conclusion, yeah, Cain is bad, that's a bummer for Abel. But there's so much more to Abel than meets the eye of this story. And uniquely enough, you know how we know this is because the writer of, writers of the New Testament pick up on this. And consider this, Abel didn't live a particularly noteworthy or memorable life. To our biblical knowledge, we're not sure if he married or had any children. He didn't live long enough to do many mighty things. But he did have one thing, didn't he? And it was the only thing that mattered. He had faith in God. The New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, write some of the details about this story that we are not immediately privy to in chapter 4 here. Hebrews 11.4 says this about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he was attested to be righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. That's pretty cool. Though Abel laid there on the ground, lifeless, cold, dead, blood everywhere, though he is dead, he still speaks because of his faith. He was a man of faith, and this faith produced obedience. This faith produced righteousness. 1 John 3.12 says that Abel's deeds were righteous, and that's why Cain wanted to kill him. A couple verses later in Hebrews 11.6, it says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, meaning he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Cain lacked faith in his offering, whatever that offering was. Abel did not. Abel's offering was accepted. But you might say, wait a minute, after hearing that Hebrews verse, God rewards those who seek him, but here's Abel who is dead. What kind of reward is that? And Cain gets to live? That doesn't seem right. But of course, I would argue that we, you're only looking at it from an earthly perspective. Rather, consider this. Have you ever thought about this? Abel is the longest tenured saint in glory. Have you thought about that before? He's been the tour guide from the beginning of time. He knows. He's been with God the longest. So what we see on the surface seems like an atrocity. But Abel goes right into the presence of almighty God. You say God doesn't reward. I say, oh my goodness, what a reward. And on the contrary, Cain rejected what God had for him. Cain was granted a very long life. That's really nice. But it was a punishment. Do you know why? Because what good is it to wander the earth, establish a kingdom, be married, have tons of children, and live many days if you don't know God? Genesis 4.14, right here in this passage, speaks to the depth of this curse. Yes, he curses um, the ground on Cain's behalf here, but there's the bigger curse at play. Look at the big curse going on. Genesis 4.14 says this. This is Cain responding to God. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. That's not that big of a deal. And from your face I will be hidden. That is frightening. Verse 16, just a couple verses later. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That's real nice that he got to live a lot of days. He got to establish a kingdom. He had posterity. He had everything. But he did not have God and therefore he had nothing. 
It is a curse to live this life without God. And it is a blessing to live any moment of any day knowing God. And Cain's name would go down as a perpetual reminder of who not to be like. If you've read the book of Jude before, it says, don't go the way of Cain. Cain lived a long time, but the Bible says, don't be like him. Rather, Hebrews 11 reminds us, be like Abel, have faith. And Abel didn't accomplish much in this life, but he knew the one who has And that's all that mattered. That's how Abel still speaks to this day. That's how many people that you know and love, that have loved the Lord God, that have gone on to be with him in glory, they still speak this day, don't they? Through their faith. Abel didn't have much, but he had everything. For what could be better than knowing and living for Jesus This is what we are to be reminded of with Abel. He knew what mattered. He obeyed because he had faith. Secondly, John the Baptist. Let's turn to Matthew 14. And it'll be a minute until we get there. John the Baptist, of course, we know many things about him. Sometimes he's not talked about very much. Rightly so, he gives way to the Lord of glory, right? He's paving the way for Jesus. But there are some things that are noteworthy about him. For instance, he had an amazing birth. His mother, Elizabeth, was barren and advanced in years, much like Sarah. And this is where we hear that statement, nothing will be impossible with God. He is set apart for a specific purpose as an angel of the Lord tells his father, Zacharias. In Luke 1, 15 through 17, it says this, He will be filled with the Spirit even in the womb. He will turn many sons of Israel back to God. He will go as a forerunner before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is as Malachi foretold, of course, so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. Luke 180 tells us he lived in the desert until his public appearance. He wore camel's hair, of course. He, had, he wore a leather belt. And his diet was really nice. It consisted of locusts and honey. He wasn't a civilized man. He wasn't a greatly educated man. Luke 3.3 says something, or Luke 3.2, I'm sorry, says something about what happened in the wilderness to John the Baptist. Luke 3.2 says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And this was to fulfill prophecies from Isaiah. Luke 3.3 tells us about what he came to preach. When he would make his public appearance, what would he say? Here's what he would say. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 3.2 shows us specifically, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at... You know this. He also exhorted them to bear fruit in keeping with this repentance. Luke 3.15 shows that some people wondered if he was the Messiah. And of course, he gladly gave this response. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist. Baptist baptizes Jesus himself, of course. Initially unwilling to do so, Jesus convinces him. And we hear the voice from heaven saying to Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In John, uh, in the gospel of John, we read that John the Baptist calls himself a mere friend of the bridegroom. He's not the bridegroom. He's just a friend who rejoices to hear the bridegroom's voice. And this is when he goes on to say, he must increase, I must decrease. We read in Luke 3 that John the Baptist is thrown into prison because he had reprimanded King Herod for unlawfully taking his brother's wife. 
John also was no stranger to having his message rejected because how would you like to be accused of this, by the way? In Matthew eleven eighteen, they heard John's message and say, he has a demon. In other words, his message is straight from the pits of hell. Can you imagine being accused of that? And knowing you were right? And this is where we pick up. Of course, he's, he's imprisoned. He, he had a faithful ministry, but he's imprisoned because he was telling the truth. He was telling King Herod, you're not living right. You have your brother's wife. And this is the context that leads us to Matthew 14. So let's take a look at this. Matthew 14, we'll start in verse 3. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although Herod, he, was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. John the Baptist lived a faithful life, and where did it get him? Right in jail. Not only that, but he had a king who hated him because he was calling him out on his sin, and there's a lot of details, really, that aren't included here. When we read verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. There's a lot going on there, and I think it, it, we would do well to picture this scene. Imagine John in the jail cell, unlawfully, by the way. Perhaps he's wondering, what's Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? When am I going to get out of here and am I going to see him again? When am I going to see my friends again? When am I going to be able to preach again? When am I going to be able to tell somebody else about the good news? God, what am I doing in this prison cell? And moments later, the guards come in. The guards come in with their keys. They unlock the jail cell. And John maybe is thinking to himself, what's going on? What's going on? What are we doing? And they deliver the message. Maybe Herod was there to deliver it himself. Who knows? It doesn't say. But maybe the guard simply said, Herod has ordered for your head. Now kneel down. We're taking it. Put your head right here. Stay still. Don't make us hold you down, John. This is going to happen one way or another. This is a tragic death. This is a terrible death. It's unjust. And sometimes we read this story and we, and we feel bad for John. We wish he would have been around longer. But we must remember how John saw it. He saw what mattered. He got it. He saw the worth of Christ and gladly lived every moment for him. And he would gladly die for him. He was so focused on his mission and he saw the worth of Jesus as greater than anything. He didn't care what he looked like. That was clear. He wore camel's hair. He didn't care if man agreed with him or not because he was telling the truth. He didn't care if he upset the lowest of the lows or the king. He didn't care if he lived a long life. He didn't care about the things of this world because all he cared about was Jesus. He was so laser focused on Jesus and his kingdom. And he knew that as soon as his head would be lopped off, he would enter into glory. And he loved Jesus more than man. He loved Jesus more than his authorities. He loved Jesus more than his kinsmen. And he loved Jesus more than his own life. And so instead of reading this account... 
in pity, we should read this account and say, well done. Because he got it. He knew Jesus and he lived for him. He lacked nothing. He had everything. So I bet you, and this is just some imagination, I bet you he said something like this. Take my head. I have Jesus. Take it. You can take whatever you want from me. You can't take my Jesus. I have him because I know him. So I'll put my head right here. Send me into glory. Thirdly, Stephen. A couple, couple pages over, turn to Acts 7. Stephen doesn't get a lot of words written about him, much like Abel. But his story has nonetheless impacted many, and it's a great example of another individual who saw the worth of Christ. And he lived that way. You know, we're first introduced to Stephen in, in Acts 6, which is one chapter prior, where, of course, you might remember this, the apostles are trying to figure out how to best serve the church. They don't want to take their time away from praying and ministering the word, so they have to appoint others, basically like a deacon. They have to appoint somebody else to serve this church. And you know who one of those is? Stephen. He's mentioned in Acts 6. Acts 6, 5 says Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 8 says he was full of grace and power and was performing signs and wonders. But something happened. His faith-induced kingdom work was met with heavy opposition. And believing Stephen's message to be a threat, these religious leaders and people, they argued with Stephen, it says in chapter 6, verse 9. They lied about him to get him into trouble in, in verse 11 of chapter 6. They put forth false witnesses to testify against him, verse 13 of chapter 6. And they incited a riot against him and dragged him before their religious leaders, chapter 6, verse 12. It was here that Stephen would make a defense in the form of a sermon. And beginning with Abraham, this is what chapter 7 is about. I encourage you, read it when you have the time. Chapter 7 is all about this. He's reminding these religious leaders. He's reminding these Jews who were supposed to know God, but they rejected him. They stumbled over the stone that is Jesus Christ. They stumbled. They decided to try to keep the law instead. They rejected him. And Stephen spends chapter 7 reminding them of how good God had been to them. He gave them promises. He brought them through Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave promises to David. He led them through captivity, or, you know, through the Babylonian captivity. He brought them back. And you know what they did? Time and time and time again, they rejected him. And this is where we get in our text that we're about to read, chapter 7, verse 51. This, he's just come to the end of, of reminding them how good God has been to them. And here's how they have treated God. This is where Stephen picks up. Verse 51, chapter 7. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Just picture that for a moment, telling a Jew they're uncircumcised. That's not going to go over well. Because they boasted in their circumcision. And he's saying, you have a physical circumcision, that's really nice, but you don't have the one that matters. You're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart, and ears that are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He's saying, you want to try me? You want to put me on trial? You should put yourself on trial. Look at you resisting God. And do you think they responded really well to this? No. Verse 54 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. 
which is, is actually cut to the quick, is really meant to symbolize a sharp pain. A sharp pain such that uh, like a needle would be driven under your fingernail, that type of pain. That's where that phrase comes from. Cut to the quick. That's how fast their heart responded to this. They began gnashing their teeth at him. You ever heard somebody say, I'm so angry I could spit? They're gnashing. They are so angry at what they've heard. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he, being Stephen, gazed intently into heaven. I I don't know what this was like. He's seeing them respond to his message, which was true. He's seeing the anger shift towards him, and maybe he just looked up. He looked into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And you know who else he saw? He saw Jesus. It says in verse 55, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I almost picture this. He is just lost in this moment. Stephen is, what would you be like? If you see the glory of God and you see Jesus, I I kind of imagine that moment in like movies when when all the sound goes out and you notice nothing around you anymore. That, I think, is what's happening here. And I think he can't even help but say what he does in verse 56. He says, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they, the crowd, the religious leaders, they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. This is toddler behavior. It really is. Have you ever seen a toddler before say, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear you. I'm just going to talk louder than you. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. It's pure rebellion. This is what they have resorted to. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who, of course, we know God would save and use mightily. But in this moment, he stands there approving. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen. The act of stoning is normally not just one stone being thrown. It is a repetitive battering, a repetitive bruising until one hits just the right organ to end your life. It says, as they went on stoning Stephen, he called out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, perhaps driven to his knees by these stones, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit because he knew where he was going. He trusted God. He got what mattered. There would have been plenty of moments for him to say, actually, I don't believe what I'm saying to you. Actually, now that I'm about to be stoned, it's not worth it. I'm not going to have this argument with you. Sure, I'll just recant and move on with my life. He couldn't. He knew Jesus, and he knew he would gladly give his life for Jesus. Like Abel and John before him, Stephen was a man of faith who saw following Christ as worth more than anything. And because of this, he would not fear man. He would speak the truth boldly because he knew the Lord would receive his spirit. Once again, like the first two deaths, we see a tragic and unjust death. And we are sometimes tempted to read this and be sorrowful. But that Jesus that he saw in the heaven, he was going to be with him in just a moment. A few stones away from being with Jesus.
And though his ministry was short, that's not really ideal to preach your one sermon and then go to glory. But it actually is ideal, isn't it? Because he gets to go to glory. And even though his ministry was seeming to just get started and his life seemed to be cut short, it didn't matter because he knew Jesus. And we even see God's purpose in it in chapter 8, verse 1. I want you to see this while you're still here. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Do you know what God used that for? To spread the gospel. In Stephen's death, he brought life by getting the Christians out from one area and sending them to all kinds of places. You see, Abel, John the Baptist, Stephen, they're not the heroes. They're only worth mentioning because they knew the hero. They were captured by their love for God. So much so that they gladly would die if it meant knowing him. I promise you they would echo the same perspective of this Saul who later became Paul when he says, under the inspiration of the Spirit in Philippians 3, he says this, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. These men saw Jesus as worthy and that made everything else not even worthy of their affection. Or even their attention. Now you might be thinking tonight, well, this is good to remember and all. And knowing Jesus is important important and living for him is important. But how does this help me in my day-to-day life? (laughs) Believer, if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you love him. And if you love him, you see him as worth more than anything in this world. And if you see him as worth more than anything in this world, you obey him. Therefore, knowing Jesus directly affects every part of your life. Because in each daily battle with sin, you are called to overcome that temptation with a superior affection. I love Jesus, that makes me not love this. If you want a better marriage, you better grow in your love for Jesus. You want to be a better parent? Know and love Jesus. Better friend? Love Jesus. So hopefully you can make much application from this truth. I think it affects every part of our lives. But in in kind of conclusion, as as we move towards the end here, I want to ask you something. Believer, these men saw the worth of Christ... Do you? Do you see him as Paul spoke of him in Philippians 3, that he gladly counted everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ? Do you see him that way? Or is he just a nice addition to your life? Is he your, like, favorite addition to your life? That's not loving Jesus. Do you live knowing his worth? Do you teach your children this way? Do you teach your children with this desperate urgency that they would know Jesus? You see, as a Christian, you may not live a long life on earth. But to know Jesus means eternal life. You may never be famous or somebody notable in the world's eyes. You may never get any recognition for anything from anybody. But to know Jesus means you are specifically loved by God. So.
so much so that he bled and died for you. And if no one else ever knew your name and God did, so be it, that's all you need. You may never accumulate great things on this earth, but to know Jesus means you have something more valuable. You have the treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy or thieves or robbers can break in. You may live the rest of your life without a dime to your name, but to know Jesus means you are rich. You may not have a perfect family on this earth. Sin causes damage, doesn't it? Maybe your spouse has left you or your children have abandoned you or you as a child have been abandoned by your parents. You may not be able to have children or you may have people in your family that hate you. But if you know Jesus, you have a perfect father. And when you're in glory, it will be a perfect family. Your nation may fall and your freedom may be lost. But who cares because you've been freed from sin and you're freed from the fear of death. You may never live a life of ease. You may be filled with constant anxieties and frustrations. But if you know Jesus, there will come a day where there will be never a reason for alarm. You will have no experience of fear or lack anymore. You may cry the rest of your days so that your life ends with weary eyes. But if you know Jesus, he will wipe them all away. And you will have no reason for sorrow any longer. You may experience trial after trial and terrible loss after terrible loss. But in comparison to knowing Jesus, you can say amen when you hear from the scriptures. This is light and momentary affliction. Because 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your body may fail and fight against you with sickness. Your organs may shut down and cause you great pain and it may lead to your death. But if you know Jesus, even if you die, you live. You may be persecuted relentlessly for your faith and hated by many. And you may die for your faith, but even when you die, you live. John eleven twenty five through 26 says this. Jesus said to her, this is talking to Mary and Martha. It's something that's been on my heart so much in recent days. He says this, after Lazarus has died, he has not raised him yet. He is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks them. And man, I think of Grayson all the time when I think of this. Because you know what's not attached to this? He doesn't say the one who believes with a full mature understanding of everything. He doesn't say the one who believes and never doubts. He says, the one who believes in me will never die. And though you see Jesus dimly through faith, one day your faith will become sight as you will see him face to face. There's a cost to following Jesus, but it is altogether worth it. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Even Paul knew this, that it is far better to die and be with Jesus than anything else. You remember when he says a little phrase that we should all live by? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And get this. Just in case you're tempted to think that you had any part in this. All of these benefits are yours in Christ Jesus because of this. He set his affection upon you from eternity past before anything had, be, anything had been created so that you would be his. 
He chose you based on nothing you had done, but solely because he loved you. He sent his son to die a terrible death on the cross for your sins. And he rose from the grave three days later to show that he crushed death. It wasn't a partial payment, it was full. He called you to himself through the gospel message and he made you alive. And now having faith in Jesus, God forgave you of all your sins and you no longer stand in your sins, but you stand in the righteousness of Christ. He gave you an inheritance that was prepared for you that no one can take away. He has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, to keep you to the very end. And when the end of your life comes, it's just the beginning of a perfect eternity where we enjoy the fullness of God's redemption plan. God dwelling with his people again in perfect harmony, except this time they can't fall. And this will be for all eternity to the glory of God. So don't ever doubt his love for you. Fall on your knees and worship him. And may this worship lead you to live for him every moment of every day with eyes on him. Because living for Jesus and knowing him is all that matters. Let's pray. God, please help us. We are so often distracted by the things of this world, but help us to be reminded that they are worthless. They are nothing compared to knowing you. Help us to be reminded that if we live for you, it matters not what else happens. So help us. We're so thankful that you revealed yourself to us. We're so thankful for the example of men like Abel, John the Baptist, and Stephen. But we do not look at them and worship them because they're not our Savior. You saved us. So help us, Lord, to know you more. And in knowing you, we will love you more. And in loving you, we will see your worth and how much more valuable you are than anything this world has to offer. Pray this in your name. Amen.